and welcome to the Health and Wellness Show. Today is Friday, January the 25th, 2019. I'm your host, Tiffany, and joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have Erica, Doug, and Elliot. Hello. Hello. Hello, everybody. Hello to all of our listeners and hello to the chatters. So today's show title, The World's a Swole Hole, (laughs) The Ever-Expanding Epidemic of Obesity. And perhaps some of you who may not be American or one of our close cousins like the Canadians, swole means it's like a, a word for overweight, obese, fat, swole. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. So the U.S. holds the title of being the fattest country on earth, and other Western and Westernized countries are catching up. Uh, There's been numerous studies and articles that have been coming out lately talking about how people are just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I've noticed it just looking at people going out People are big, not just old mm. people, but young people are just getting really big. Children, too. Yeah. So there's been, for years and years, lots of dietary advice, you know, eat less, move more, have a balanced diet, eat more fruits and vegetables, and people are still getting fatter and fatter. Is it because people just don't want to listen and they're hard-headed and they're greedy and they just you know, sit on the couch all day and watch TV? Or is there something else going on? Which, of course, there is. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about swoleness. <laughs> uh, we'll throw some statistics in there, and we'll talk about some fat shaming and the current fat acceptance movement that is Swole shaming ground. Yeah. Oh, so- and just as a... A bit of a heads up to all of our loyal listeners. We are going to be changing format pretty soon, like mm-hmm. next week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to attempt to embrace the current technology called YouTube <laughs> and do some <laughs> video shows. So uh, look for that. Well, yeah. I guess we'll have more details. We don't have all the kinks ironed out yet so that's what we're working on so anyway on to the fatness and <laughs> let me just say this when i use the word fat or fatness or fatty or swole or something like that i don't mean it in a bad way i'm not trying to shame fat shame anybody i at one point in my life was obese or morbidly obese so i know of which i speak so we'll get into that so we're yeah, it was a fact. Start off. Yeah. So, we've got the pass. Yeah. <laughs> fat pass. <laughs> fat pass. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, looking at some, some of the statistics, yeah, I was just going to say, looking at some of the statistics, um, it's quite quite scary, actually, um, particularly in the UK. Um, 
So obesity is typically considered to be uh, something that happens sort of in adulthood. People uh, fall into behavior patterns or they their diet goes off the wagon somewhat and they you know start to put on weight but actually like um, the obesity epidemic seems to be really affecting children now mm-hmm. so um, there's this um, there's this statistic in the UK and it's basically talking about how um, this is one this news report talking about how the number of people needing joint replacements um, has increased by almost 60 percent mm-hmm. um, in the last three years yeah and and um, it, it's affecting children so 10 children and teenagers aged between 10 and 19 have had hip replacements since 2014 so that's in five years um, and this is purely because they are overweight so mm. so you've got children who are so like morbidly obese now um, that they're actually having to have hip surgery before they turn 18. Mm. And that's, that's just quite scary. Crazy. Um, in the, the National Health Service in the UK, basically the, um, it's like the, yeah, the health service that we have. The statistics between 2016 and 2017 showed that children aged 10 to 11, um, 20% of them are obese. Like that's, I swear that wasn't even like that when I was a kid. And that was only 20 no. years ago. So, you know, that's one in five children is is actually clinically obese. Like that's... Well, in, in the U.S., like just to give an idea of the timeline here, <clears throat> there was an article up on SOD about, it said, surprise, surprise, government data show average Americans significantly larger than in the past. And it was one study that was comparing um, statistics from 1960 um, and they said that between 1960 and 2002, um, both men and women gained 24 pounds on average. And through 2016, men gained an additional eight pounds and women another seven pounds. So for men, that's like 32 pounds since 1960 and women uh, 31 pounds. So it's like, that's a huge increase. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not surprised that it's like, you know, having these kinds of effects like uh, joint replacement surgeries and things like that. Well, with that joint replacement thing, I'm wondering if it is it just because they're obese? Because there has to be some degeneration of the bone going on, too, if they need their entire hip replaced. Mm-hmm. So not to say that the obesity isn't aggravating the situation. And mm-hmm. probably what led these children to be obese is probably the main contributor to the hip degeneration. Yeah, I think that's pretty likely. But the mm-hmm. problem is that, you know, and maybe... <laughs> it's not really teased out in the article. Well, the thing is, it's not teased out. Like, the authorities don't tend to tease these things out. Like, mm-hmm. all these things that are associated with obesity, like diabetes, like heart disease, like Alzheimer's and all these kinds of things, they say, or at least they spin it in a way that they say obesity causes these things. Mm -hmm. So if you're obese, you have a higher chance of being a type 2 diabetic. They never look at it like the, there's a common cause for both of them. Mm -hmm. That like, 
the thing that's making you type two diabetic is also the thing that making you that's making you obese. Yeah, it's not and, you know, the fact that you're obese that you became diabetic. Whatever caused right, you because to that's become a, diabetic also caused you to become obese. Right. Because, you know, by, by perpetuating that, and I don't know if this is done on purpose or not, like, you know, tinfoil hat time, but I think the reasoning behind that is if they, they don't want people, maybe I shouldn't phrase it in this way because it does sound too conspiratorial, but basically mm -hmm. it's like, they don't want to see themselves what the actual root causes are. They want to treat these things as separate things and they can say, okay, if you're obese, you have a higher chance of becoming diabetic, therefore you need to lose weight. Instead of being like, well, you know, there's a common cause for all these things and we should address that because it will ad address the excess weight as well as addressing all these different disease conditions that are coming up. Mm -hmm. Metabolic syndrome, I guess, is an easy way of talking about that constellation of symptoms. So I, I feel like there's a real push behind the scenes to keep these things as completely separate, to place the blame on individuals instead of on the real causes of these issues. Mm -hmm. And it just depends on where the author of the articles or the studies are where they're coming from because a lot of people mm -hmm. do think that it's not like they're being malicious or trying to hide some grand conspiracy behind you know what makes people fat and sick but, well <laughs> i mean maybe at some level but some people just truly think that people get fat because yeah. they eat too much and they don't exercise enough and that's i think the that perspective problem. is being, being enforced though yeah yeah it is bye Bum, bum, bum. I think it's the same <laughs> companies. Big food, big, big agri food. company. Yeah, I think I well, think that's basically what's coming down to. Let me throw in a few more statistics. Uh, according to one article, there's 711 million overweight or obese people in the world. Uh, one third of the world's population is overweight, according to one article. And it's gotten so bad, like with the armed services, there's 66% of these people are classified as overweight or obese going by uh, the BMI. So the BMI is looking at the, your height versus your weight. So if you have a score of over 25, then you're overweight. Anything over 30 is obese, and anything over 40 is morbidly obese. So apparently the armed services and the army, I guess, is the worst, has a problem with all these overweight service members who can't pass like, their, their physical training because they're too big. Here's yeah, so the problem, though. Because the BMI is is not always completely accurate. Right. Um, if somebody if somebody like because muscle weighs more than fat, right? Mm -hmm. So if you weigh somebody, if you're only going by weight and height, then they might have a lot of muscle on their body, so that that is going to add weight, and then they're going to have an overweight score on the BMI. So I think it's difficult to go just by the BMI. I have no doubt that there is a problem with obesity in the army and armed services, all these different uh, services, because it's a problem in the entire country. So I can't see why, you know, these 
these armed services would be immune to it. But uh, the, the BMI is a, is a really terrible measurement, and I don't know why they keep on insisting that that's the way that you measure these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I because think if you're a- on... Go ahead, Ellen. Sorry, for the average person, I think a BMI can be quite helpful. Um, but that's for the average person who doesn't really um, partake in weightlifting. <laughs> because mm-hmm. as soon as you get weightlifting in, into the picture, it, everything goes completely out of the window. Um, and, uh, you know, especially the armed forces, um, they're renowned for lifting heavy weights you know many of them in their free time they you know i know a couple of people who are, who are in the army in the uk anyway and they say you know all of their free time is basically in the gym so <laughs> so i'd imagine that, yeah i'm not sure where how sort of accurate that statistic is but um yeah yeah so there's been all this health advice We've seen the food pyramid, even though they ditched it. Mm-hmm. But it had all these grains and breads and pastas at the foundation at the bottom of the pyramid, meaning that that's where the bulk of your food should be coming from. And I think it goes up to like uh, vegetables. And then the very, very top is fats and oils and meat right underneath it. Oh my God, meat? <laughs> Well, yeah, and then they switched over to my plate, at least in the U.S., and they have like a, a circular plate, and they have these pie sections carved out of it, and they have, you know, the carbohydrates or starchy foods, and then your vegetables, and then one of the pies. doesn't say meat. It says protein. <laughs> Tofu? <laughs> so yeah. That's your healthy plate. Correct. Like if you go to your doctor and you're overweight or obese, said, oh, you know, you need to eat more fruit, eat more vegetables, you know, have a better diet. And people have an idea of what a better diet is. Like uh, eat more fruits and vegetables, most of what they say. They never say take things out mm-hmm. for the most part. They just say add in fruits and vegetables, mm-hmm. which is really bad advice. But it's not as if obese people don't know that they're probably not eating as healthy as they could be or should be. But when they go for help, they get like really awful, awful advice that does not help them. And then they might try it for a while and it doesn't work and they get discouraged and they go back to eating what they usually eat. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just a really bad cycle. Yeah. And again, I got to say, I think that a lot of the blame for this actually is on these big food corporations that are influencing the public policy. They put a lot of money into making sure that the advice that is given is given in such a way that it doesn't discourage consumption of their products. Mm -hmm. Like a good example is there was an article a while ago on uh, on SOT called Big Pasta Cooks Up Self-Interested Nutrition Science. And it's talking all about this company called Barilla. And they're a pasta company. Mm -hmm. So all of their nutritional science, which is just a bunch of BS, like, you know, 
fake science um, is geared towards making people have a positive image of grains, a positive image of pasta in particular. They put out, you know, studies that say, oh yeah, eating pasta helps you lose weight. And, you know, they quote unquote prove that through their science. But they're a huge company and they put like billions and millions of dollars into um, influencing food policy. I mean, another good example is like Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola and stuff. Coca-Cola was uh, exposed a while back for funding this thing called the Global Energy Balance Network, which is basically um, a company that pushes the idea that calories are all that matters. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, at first glance, you might really not really see how that would advantage Coca-Cola, but it really does. Because if, if all calories are the same, and it doesn't matter where you're getting your calories from, then you can eat whatever you want as long as you exercise enough to burn off those calories to maintain a calorie, um, either neutral calorie, calorie balance or a deficit so that you lose weight. So they can tell you that, you know, a thousand calories of uh, salad is the same thing as a thousand calories of Coca-Cola. Um, it's just up to you to make sure that you exercise and you don't overdo it on the calories. You know, it puts all the emphasis on the individual, that they are the ones who are in control of this, 100% in control of this, and it's their fault if they're not in shape. Yeah, their so, products again, can be a part of a balanced, healthy diet. Exactly. And again, these people, like, they're putting so much money into nutrition policy. So as well as having these kind of like, you know, these PR companies putting out all this information, um, you know, running ads before movies and things like that, like, you know, these ideas, they get them into the public consciousness, but they also are directly funding um, nutritional policy. So the idea that, like, you know, the food pyramid, when it was the food pyramid or the my plate or whatever you want to say, that these guidelines actually reflect, like, what scientists have discovered is the best thing for people to be eating is just nonsense. It's like there might be a little bit of that in there, but a greater influence is coming from all of these companies that are putting this information, like, you know, making sure that the advice given doesn't negatively affect their companies. So... So kind of yeah. they're micromanaging the image. Well, there Absolutely. was this uh, guy who embarked on an experiment where he would just eat Twinkies and other like oh, junk yeah. foods. And he lost weight, like maybe like 25, 27 pounds or something. And he went on this whole press junket and was advertising what he did. Basically, he was just reinforcing the idea that it's calories in, calories out, as long as you don't eat over a certain amount of calories and you can lose weight. But it turns out that his whole experiment was funded by Coca-Cola. <laughs> yeah, because they the want diet? to enforce Yeah, the that. Twinkie diet. <laughs> they want to enforce that perspective. And the guy probably lost weight because he was malnourished. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's ridiculous. So on top of, you know, eating poorly, even though a lot of people really don't have that much advanced knowledge, I mean, they can say, yeah, Twinkies are probably not the best thing that I could be eating. I probably shouldn't drink so much beer or eat so much pizza, but I don't think the average person who struggles with their weight is aware of the nutritional science as to why 
Like there are certain people who can just eat whatever they want and they don't put on weight. They're, they are still skinny. And there are people who can eat like a handful of chips and it'd be okay with them and they can just walk away. And other people, they eat the whole bag of chips. So I don't think that a lot of people understand the addictive quality of certain foods and the fact that certain people are more likely genetically to be able to put on tons of fat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have something called metabolic flexibility and this is the, basically it's a term referring to the body's ability to switch between different fuel sources. Okay. So typically someone who is um, slim and they can eat loads of food, but they don't really ever put on any weight. Um, a bit like myself, <laughs> sorry to say. <laughs> um, I'm one of those people, and I think that it, generally people are. Uh, uh, this tends to be the case when people are in their, you know, twenties, maybe in their early thirties, and and it tends to be the case that when people get older, that they um, are less able to to burn off that that those calories. Um, but I think it, it actually has to do with this concept of metabolic flexibility. And so, um, people who are generally, um, in good health or people who are young, uh, typically have a more flexible, uh, I guess you could say control system, uh, whereby their metabolism can, um, basically utilize, uh, different substrates. So it can switch between the utilization of glucose and then it can switch to the utilization of fat. So say if someone consumes a bunch of glucose, they can use that readily. They can burn it as energy. They can produce energy from it and it doesn't really go anywhere. It goes towards their metabolism. And then when they go to bed at nighttime, they switch towards burning fat, you know? Um, And this is like a cycle that they go through. And this is generally um, what underlies someone maintaining body mass. But when you have a situation when someone um, consumes like, you know, a handful of chocolate or something, and then they automatically put on that as weight, that really indicates some kind of metabolic dysfunction. And this person may not necessarily have metabolic syndrome per se as a diagnosable condition, but they may be on their way towards that because of the lack of flexibility of how well they burn certain substrates. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. It's a pretty good explanation for why you've got those anomalies. Well, I mean, there's a lot of them, so I don't know if you can call it an anomaly, but these people who are like that, you know, it doesn't matter what they do. They remain lean the whole time. And everybody's like, oh, they're so lucky. But it's like, mm-hmm they're still paying the consequence in some ways. You know, it doesn't mean they can't become diabetic or they can't have, um, get problems with their heart or their circulatory system or their brain or all these other kinds of things. It's actually, the, the fatties are kind of the lucky ones, like myself, because mm-hmm. it's kind of like an external um, warning system that like, yeah, you're doing something wrong. You're putting on all this weight. That's... Uh, that's not uh, not good. So I might be able to kind of intervene and do something before uh, it leads to any kind of more serious damage 
Um, whereas the skinnies kind of are just like, well, I'm fine. I'm not fat. Mm -hmm. I'm good. I can eat whatever I want. Yeah, like with the people who have an incredible ability to store fat, which I would <laughs> classify myself as, maybe in a way, like storing that fat in the subcutaneous tissues of your body where it shows up as you are visibly fat is better, though not aesthetically, it's better than a skinny person who has a high metabolism, but they can break down fat quite easily, but then they can shunt it off into their organs or blood vessels. And they can still suffer the consequences of that. Like there are like marathon runners who drop dead of heart attacks. I mean, uh, marathon running is not the best thing to be engaging in. It puts quite a strain on your heart. But if you're one of those skinny people who can break down fat easily and just push it in different places in your body, but it doesn't show up in the subcutaneous tissue, then you're still in danger as well. But I think that the problem is, is that you still look good. So no one can really point a finger at you and they're all shocked when you drop dead. But yeah. if you're fat and you drop dead, then, oh, it's because you were fat. Yeah, this is like a really interesting point, actually, because someone can, you can have someone who you would look at who is obese and then someone who you look at and think is physically, like, healthy. Um, but the person who is obese could actually be more metabolically healthy than mm -hmm. the person who is lean. Um, mm -hmm. but, I mean, it's like to go into the details it, it would be too complex but essentially the the storage of fat around the organs um can be caused by lots of different things but that that is really like the dangerous fat because if you look at like okay for instance you look at um fat on the thighs um there are many women who do store fat on the on the thighs but the fat on the thighs is not in inflammatory, okay? So, so you have different types of fat, different types of fat cells. And certain types of fat cells are more hormonally active or they're, typically, they're actually classed as endocrine tissues because they release hormones, they release inflammatory cytokines. Um, and so if you look at the fat around someone's thighs, this is typically benign. This is like literally just, okay, this is an energy storage depot. Um, there's not necessarily any, anything wrong with this um, per se. I mean, it's probably not optimal to have too much, but it's probably not going to kill you as well. Whereas if you look at the fat that is um, what they call visceral fat or the fat around the internal organs, um, like fatty liver or whatnot, basically in the visceral cavity, this is, this is like a hormonal depot. It's like a pharmacy and it's constantly rele releasing um, inflammatory cytokines um, and these are essentially uh, what is contributing towards what we call sort of uh, metabolic syndrome yeah so so it, yeah it's important to make that distinction between um, between different types of fat because it, it can be misleading like you said well to piggyback yeah. onto that if you have you know, a big butt and big thighs and have a, a smaller waist, you're better off than someone who is more, I don't know, apple-shaped mm. with more fat around the middle. But there's been 
quite a few studies that show that overweight people, not necessarily obese, but overweight people live longer than their skinnier counterparts. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's because they are more metabolically healthy. So if we were to consider that and then look at the BMI, should the overweight category be normal, classified as normal, and then the obese and the skinny be classified as abnormal? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Getting into dangerous territory there, I think. I don't know. It's the new politically correct version. (laughs) But back to the food and obese people being thought as uh, just eating and eating and eating. Now, back when I was obese, quite obese, like well, well over 300 pounds, I'm not quite sure how much over 300 pounds I was because one, I avoided the scale like Mm. the plague and two, most scales go up to 300. (laughs) Stop. (laughs) So if I were to guess, maybe I was like 340, somewhere around there, maybe. And there are people who are fat or obese and say, well, you know, I don't really eat that much. My diet is okay. I'm going to confess that my diet was not okay. Mm. I ate quite a bit, quite a bit of junk food, quite a bit of fast food, a lot of carbohydrates was my focus, and I ate quite a lot of it. But I was young at that time, so I didn't have like any, I wasn't diabetic, I didn't have high blood pressure, I could still be quite active and exercise and go on hikes and do aerobics and all that stuff, but I was huge. And I think that the thing that comes into play that a lot of people don't consider is the addictive quality of these foods. I think we talked about this quite a bit on that show that we did about junk foods. Mm -hmm. Like the thing that some people can avoid, like they just eat a little bit of junk food and they can walk away versus someone who is obese. It's like a drug. Mm -hmm. I say it's not like a drug. It is a drug, the way it affects your brain. You crave it constantly. You're constantly thinking about what you're going to eat next. You think about how guilty you feel about what you just ate, but it's, a, it's very, very, very difficult to not eat those foods because your brain craves it. Your body craves it. So They're designed just, to be that way. Yeah, and then you go on a diet, you know, exercise a whole lot, which makes you hungrier and then you want to eat. And if uh, you don't have the knowledge to right, fight against that and to substitute it with foods that are more satisfying because junk foods, you know, they don't turn on that stop signal. You just eat and eat and eat because your body is looking for nutrients and you never get them, so you just keep eating. So people aren't aware of that. They're just going to keep going. And they're not getting advice from their doctors on that the way to deal with mm-hmm. it. Like uh, when no. reading for this show, I was reading about the gastric band surgery that people get. And yeah, that's seen as the ultimate solution. <laughs> yeah. And what was really disturbing to me was that it's becoming more common and prevalent in children now. And mm-hmm. so that to me 
says that, well, these doctors don't have any experience in nutrition, and we've said that many times on this show, like I think what they get a semester, maybe a, mm-hmm. a three credits or something of nutrition, but that they're going to do these surgeries, and then these people, and I do, I have a family member who had it, who did lose a lot of weight initially, but two years in is now back to the same size. Mm-hmm. And really, they just shrink your stomach, right? So one of the things was, yes, she couldn't eat what she used to eat before, but that she would physically physically get ill if she overate, but never address the issue like Tiffany was saying. Like, Mm -hmm. well, maybe you should cut out the the carbs and the pasta. And yes, you're eating less, but it's like it's a Band-Aid, essentially. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they're doing doing it to children, I think, is criminal that, yeah. oh, we'll just cut out part of your stomach and that will make it all better. I mean, that's a pretty serious surgery to go through. And then it comes with like side effects, like you can't absorb nutrients, vitamins and minerals from your foods. It's a real big old mess. But there are shows like My 600 Pound Life and uh, some other shows where they have these morbidly obese people and that is seen as the only solution to them losing weight. They never, I mean, they all say, yeah, you shouldn't eat so much food. You shouldn't eat, you know, a bunch of junk foods and all that. And then they force them to go on a diet and say, you have to lose like 100 pounds, 50 pounds before you can undergo the surgery because otherwise it'll be too dangerous. Why don't they just keep them dieting, cut out all the carbs, eat meat, and it'll be better than going under the knife? Because they don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's basically what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they think that this is a viable solution because they don't have another one. I mean, the fact of the matter is just cutting, just quote-unquote going on a diet. So, like, cutting out calories or whatever. It doesn't work. It no. works temporarily. And it's like that, that, you know, people see, oh, yeah, they're losing weight. Okay, that's great. And then they end up gaining it all back again. And there's a reason for that. You know, because basically if you suddenly cut out a massive part of your, your calories, and you know, this, take this with a grain of salt because it really depends on what the diet is in the first place because people can go on caloric restriction relatively easily um, if their, their diet is good. But if you just kind of are eating the usual crap but you cut out your calories, you, your body ends up going into this kind of starvation mode situation where it thinks you're in the middle of a famine. Mm-hmm. So you do lose weight, but the body will fight really hard to make sure you don't lose too much weight because then your ability to survive the famine is going to be is going to be gone. You have to have some storage. So if your body thinks that you're in a famine, it's going to start storing as much as it possibly can. And I mean they've shown this in so many different studies like with mice and stuff like that and there was one study I read about on a squirrel where the squirrel was, uh, you know, they, they put on weight for the winter. They naturally do. So like, okay, what happens if we starve this squirrel so that it can't put on weight for the winter? Well, guess what? It's still put on weight for the winter. It will take whatever <laughs> food you give it and will put more towards storing it because mm-hmm. your body is wanting to, to protect itself from this famine um, than it does to other things. So, you know, people, when they're on these super low-calorie diets, well, they, they stop doing things like fidgeting or um, they feel cold all the time. Their nails start to grow slowly. Their hair starts to fall out. That's because the body is conserving every last speck of energy that it's getting. And you know anything that's considered non-essential, like fingernail growth, 
or you know, well, they can be a little bit colder than normal. Um, it will do that to to try and 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 conserve. So these, like you know, the ga- the whole gastric bypass thing is just a it's a recipe for disaster. And I'm not surprised that the person you knew ended up gaining all the weight back because that's exactly what happens when people go on these severe calor- caloric restriction diets. They, they rebound. At some point, they rebound. This is why Weight Watchers goes through so many different spokespeople because <laughs> they lose all this weight for a while and then all of a sudden they put it all back on so they got to throw them away and get a different spokesperson. Well, that's the thing about this caloric restriction I mean, your body is going to go into crisis mode where it stores anything that you eat as fat. And it's going to be even harder for, like, if you try it again in the future to lose fat because your body's like, nope, I'm hanging on to this. And there's a whole mental aspect. I mean, it's miserable. You're constantly hungry. Your body is just screaming for nourishment. And there's no way that you can fight against constant hunger for days and days and months and years on end, like people will expect you to do when they say just eat less and move more. There's no way. And have it be yeah. sustainable. Yeah. So like you Nobody saying, has that much willpower. <laughs> no. No, it runs out at some point for sure. Especially in our modern society where food is literally everywhere you work you look. Mm-hmm. It's like you and can't work. walk to work. <laughs> yeah, and work. Like, like seriously, you can't, you can't walk anywhere in a city and not pass like, you know, 50 restaurants or something like that on your way or like snack foods or snack food advertisements or like all this kind of stuff, even at work, you know, there's a company fridge that everybody throws their food in there. You got candy machines and all this kind of stuff. Like considering food is so readily available, um, and to cheap. expect somebody and cheap, yeah, especially all the processed food is dirt cheap. Like to expect somebody to have enough willpower to like forcibly starve themselves, it's not going to happen. Like maybe if you could put yourself in a cage, you could do it. <laughs> have your food given to you through the bars. Yeah, yeah. maybe you could do it. I'm going to live in uh, a cage for the rest of my life. Yeah, yeah, it's not not possible. And this obesity trend seems to be something that's primarily affecting poorer people because you have the so-called food deserts where certain neighborhoods, they don't have like big supermarket chains. They have little convenience stores or bodegas where they have just processed crap you can go in and buy. There's just fast food joints all over the place and these fast food restaurants are being... uh, what do you call it, exported to uh, different places all over the world. Like in the Middle East now, they're seeing a big boom in obesity because all of these KFCs and Taco Bells and Burger Kings and all those are being exported over to places like Dubai and that, and people are just blowing up. And they're changing their tune to like KFC is no longer Kentucky Fried Chicken because it doesn't <laughs> sound healthy. Uh-huh. But you know now they're offering a salad with a or a wrap as an option. Yeah, like mm-hmm. the fluorescent green coleslaw, right? <laughs> <laughs> that stuff's healthy. So they know that they got to get the message out too, but they can't change their whole business model. So they change the wording, mm-hmm. and they even mm-hmm. have like a. 
like you folks were talking about the calorie, you know, eat a, a KFC chicken salad and you'll have, you know, less calories than if you eat a bucket of fried chicken, you know. But if you keep walking in the KFC thinking that every time I come in here, I'm just going to order the salad, you're not. Eventually, you're going <laughs> to cave and get the biscuit with the honey on it. And the gravy. Yeah, yeah. and the mashed potatoes. And they think they have macaroni and cheese and all that now. Mm -hmm. It's just not going to happen. Well, the but, thing is, too, they're super, they're super deceptive with all those calorie counts and stuff like that, too. Because as long as people are just focused on the calories, like, mm -hmm. you know, you're not going to accomplish anything. It's like, I remember they came out with that sandwich a while back. It was like... Instead of it was like a deep fried piece of chicken, and instead of bread, they put like more chicken around it or something like that. <laughs> it, yeah, it had a it special name. Yeah, and the thing is that they were like, like people were all like, "Oh, that's just abominable! I can't believe it! That's terrible!" And then their like response to it was, "Well, you know, look at it. it's less calories than a Big Mac, and it's less <laughs> calories than this, and actually, if you work it into a balanced diet, it's not that bad." And people are, "Oh yeah, okay, I guess it's not bad at all. I'm going to order three with a diet Coke." <laughs> yeah, with right? a diet exactly. Yeah, with a diet Coke, because then no calories. Yeah. Even though artificial sweeteners will spike your insulin, and if your insulin is always high that's a signal to your body to store fat yep yeah so there was one article and they noticed a, a correlation like they looked at people's average weights and they noticed like around like the late 70s like 1976 around 1980 people started getting fatter and 1976 was the same year that high fructose corn syrup was classified as safe to eat. Mm -hmm. So that could be a big part of it. I mean, your body has no idea what to do with high fructose corn syrup. It just goes straight to fat. Yeah. Well, it's such a toxic process to even create it. Like, I think they have to heat it up to 1,300 degrees or something to make it. So there's no way you could even burn that in mm -hmm. any sort of a way. And on the kind of soda thing, they were, there was an article on SOT several years ago about how if you drink just one soda a day with high fructose corn syrup, and it, at the end of the year, you will have gained 13 pounds just from that one soda a day. Mm -hmm. That doesn't surprise me a bit. <laughs> I honestly wonder, like, you know, as bad as all these fast foods are, like, how much of it is just the soda? Like, mm -hmm. how much of it is really, like, when it comes right down to you're just getting a super hit of sugar in those things. Like, I mean, you know, well, candy bars and all that kind of stuff, obviously, are doing their part, too. But, like, soda, honestly, that's got to be one of the worst. Well, fast food and soda goes together. I mean, they... yeah. What else are you going to drink? The beverage companies. Yeah, and they have all you can drink. Mm. At yeah, the and it's not. You just go up and get some more. I mean, like the big gulp is what now? 36 ounces? Or, I mean, that, oh that's bigger God. than your stomach. <laughs> <laughs> it's insane. Yeah. And yet we blame obese people for their obesity. Not that they're. You know, there's no responsibility whatsoever. I mean, eventually you have to get to a place 
where you say, okay, enough is enough. I know that this food is not good for me. What else, what can I do? What's better than this? And you have to make the choice to actually do something about it, not sit around and like be in this whole victim status. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that certainly people are responsible um, for their own health. I think that's a, there's a big part of that. Um, but at the same time, you can't put all the blame on people because the knowledge is somewhat difficult to come by. Yeah. You know, if you've got your doctor and your TV and your newspapers and all your friends telling you that the way to lose weight is to eat less and exercise more and stick to the food pyramid and blah, 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 then... Yeah, I, I mean, you know, that's what people are going to, they're going to do that. They're going to think, okay, well, it's my fault. It's my willpower. I'm eating, um, you know, too much food. Therefore, I'm going um, to, in order to change, I'm going to have to take, take these actions. Where, you know, and I mean, good on people for actually trying to get on top of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that, you know, they are at least taking some responsibility for what they're trying to do. Unfortunately, in many, in most cases, it's not going to work. Yeah, and to blame to blame people for that is is kind of terrible. Because I mean, you know, they're at least trying to take responsibility and actually doing doing something about their their condition, and they're just giving giving really terrible advice. And I think that a lot of people who are doing the blaming or the fat shaming are people who have never been through it themselves. Like they're probably one of these people, they can eat, you know, what they consider healthy or whatever. They might not go out and eat like a bunch of fast food and a bunch of junk. And they think that that is the whole reason about why they are not obese. They might be, you know, genetically gifted in that way and never really had a problem with their weight. Like if they do pork up, it's maybe like 10, 15 pounds, which you can easily lose just by eating less and exercising more. Um, And it depends on how long you've been fat. Like if you just got fat, like within the last couple of years, maybe eating less and exercising more would work for you. And it depends on how young you are, like what you can do in your 20s. Like if you wait until your 40s or your 50s, it's not going to work anymore. And like there are people who maybe at some point in their life, they became obese by eating a bunch of foods that they shouldn't have been eating. And then they said, okay, so I'm not going to eat that stuff anymore. Say I'm going to go on a low carb diet or something. And they find that it's not working as well as it should, because I think the longer that you are metabolically deranged, the harder it's going to be to lose weight, no matter what you do, even if you are like keto carnivore or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it's always going to be a battle if you are one of those people who gain a lot of weight. But back to the, the fat shaming, like, I said before, the people who do a lot of the fat shaming are the ones who are thin and never had a weight problem, so they have no idea what it's like. But where was I going with this? Like, <laughs> they, they come at it from a place like, oh, I'm so concerned. 
because being obese is not healthy. You know, you put yourself at risk for a heart attack and diabetes and stroke and all this stuff. And I'm so concerned because it's just not healthy. And you need to prove to me that you can be fat and healthy at the same time. But really, if you look, because I watched a lot of these fat shaming videos on YouTube, <laughs> and if this is concern for your health, then just don't be concerned for me because it's very hateful and vitriolic and finger pointing and they're just basically calling obese people fat lazy pigs in mm -hmm. concern for the health they try to put that little gloss on it because they care so much but if they cared so much they would go and yell at uh, a type 1 diabetic like you're putting a big strain on the, the medical <laughs> the health system you're draining all this money uh, they don't go out and do that to people who are skinny and unhealthy. They do it for the people who are fat and unhealthy. And I think mm -hmm. the main reason is because people don't like the way fat people look. That's what it comes down yeah. to. It comes down to thin privilege. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, there's, there's a lot of nuance to it because yeah. like, you know, you can come to it from a place of like, the whole SJW thing and oh you're coming from a place of thin privilege and everybody should just be happy with the body that they have and telling a fat person to lose weight is is uh um oppressive and you're 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 being a terrible person and fat shaming and all this kind of stuff and it's like yeah you know that's that's obviously taking things too far to a certain extent because it's coming it's just painting everybody as a victim and like we said, everybody does have to take some responsibility for their health, for sure. But at the same time, it's like you don't know that person's situation. You don't know what their metabolism is like. Maybe they're a 200, they were a 300 pound person and now they're down to 275. That's mm -hmm. something to be celebrated, not shamed, right? Like yeah. the, the fact is there's just so much, there's so much nuance in there that the idea of shaming anybody is just ridiculous anyway. It's like, what are you yeah. shaming them for? Like, you know, get get real. It's just ridiculous. And do you but, shame um, drug addicts and, you know, say, oh, you piece of crap. You have no willpower. You should just go somewhere and die. <laughs> well, you don't do well, that. Some people do. <laughs> some people do that. But that's really not the way to go about it. I mean, there's such a thing as compassion. Like, how many people really have you helped to lose weight in all of your concern? Have you actually tried to help anybody? to lose weight as I'm sure nobody would want to come to you to help them if that's what you speak about them. But I mean, there's a difference. Yeah, well, there's there also is. the, the environmental aspect. And so in doing research for the show, started reading about the rise of obesogens. So, mm -hmm. um, they're basically, um, chemicals in the environment. So BPA, bisphenol A, fire retardants, plastics, food containers, things like that. And um, I think that's one thing that people aren't really considering, like in doing the research, is how, again, since Doug shared the statistics from the 1960s till now, like all these chemicals that are in the environment and how mm -hmm. they are changing the endocrine system. And maybe, Elliot, you can share more about it. But it just seemed really fascinating to look into that just how your food is packaged, like again, fast food is an excellent example of, you know, or styrofoam or Tupperware and all these things, pesticides even, and how um, 
they really cause uh, major end- endocrine disruption. And so yeah. uh, they're starting to see it even in house pets, you know, people, domesticated yeah. animals. And so it is the food for sure, but it could be the environmental load that people are dealing with. And as we've talked about on the shows in the past, like some people have better ability to detox those things than others. But uh, one of the, there's a article that we carried on SOT back in 2011 called Our Chemicals Making Us Fat. And I recommend it because they talk about how exposure to tiny amounts of obesogens during embryonic development has startling effects on animals resulting in obesity, infertility, and feminization of the male species, ambiguous sexual characteristics, and high death rates. And so they did a study of over 2,000 Americans who had high levels of PCBs, dioxin, and pesticides, and they had a rate of diabetes 38 times higher than people who didn't have high levels. So Mm -hmm. there's definitely a correlation there. What it is, I can't say, but... It, it seems like that's something that's not being considered. So, again, you're at the doctor. He doesn't say, hey, by the way, maybe store your water in glass or don't drink out of plastic bottles or, mm-hmm. you know, don't m- microwave your food in plastic or get rid of that flame-retardant couch you have or whatever it is. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because yeah. it's, again, it's very nuanced, but we don't want to look at that part of the environment adding to this epidemic. Well, the thing is, too, it's like if you look at, you look at people like in the 1960s, right? I mean, their diets weren't exactly amazing. Like, you know, they were eating a lot of carbs. They were eating like, you know, they were drinking Coke and like doing all this other kind of stuff. And And they they weren't going to the gym all the time either. They were, no. I mean, exercising in your spare time was not a thing. Nobody did that, right? Like jogging wasn't a thing. So it's like all of these, these, this problem that we're having right now there's more going on than just food because it is clearly a different environment like there if you compare what somebody was eating in the uh the 1960s versus now i mean yeah there's a lot of difference with all the fast food and the processed food and all that kind of stuff but if i imagine if you take your average american who's eating home-cooked meals um they're probably not eating significantly differently from what the people were in the 60s so there's there's more going on than just you know what they're eating i mean what's in the food might be changing as well like all the chemicals and all that stuff like what you're just talking about erica but yeah i think like just the food itself you have to look beyond that a little bit yeah that seems to be the case there's some interesting statistics like how many carbohydrates the average american consumed in like 1896 (laughs) and it was like the same amount of carbs (laughs) like they used to love their potatoes and things like that you know Hmm. um they used to eat you know if you look at the peasants like all the farmers i mean those guys used to cane the carbohydrates and (laughs) obesity levels were still really low um, so it's not quite as simple as now, now whilst carbohydrate restriction, I believe it is a really useful tool in our modern world. Um, I don't think that it can simply be put down to, okay, um, you know, you're eating too much bread or you're eating too many potatoes. Um, and even, I mean, to be, to be honest, even when you look at like the details of insulin, like how insulin actually works in the body, it doesn't necessarily like, 
it's not necessarily a fat storage hormone. Like it's it's believed to be a fat storage hormone, but it's it's a little bit more nuanced than that. And I think it can explain why some people can eat a ton of carbs and like be really quite healthy, whereas other people can't. But that's a whole other topic for another discussion. But ultimately, yeah, it seems that many of the components in the food and also the other things that we come into contact with just actually completely mess up the body's ability to deal with that stuff, to deal with the sugar, to deal with the carbohydrates, to deal with even to deal with fat, you know, deal with fat and protein. So it's like the body is unable to effectively metabolize macronutrients. Um, I think one of the reasons is because there's not as many micronutrients. I think there's many things in the environment and the chemicals and things which deplete our body of that. Um, but also, like, you'd be amazed. I've got several clients at the moment who, um, like, their history is basically as soon as they had their amalgams removed, their health went completely down and their weight, like, like completely ballooned. And mm. there's all other kind of toxic exposures that you see when you speak to people. Um, and it's like everything kind of became exacerbated or actually originated from that toxic exposure. And when you look at the effects that some of these chemicals can have on something like insulin sensitivity, it's really interesting because if you look at, like, say, carbohydrates, like ideally when you consume it, it's going to go to the skeletal muscle and you're going to actually use it. And then it's going to go to all of the other places. And then the last place it's going to go is the fat. So they say, okay, when you consume carbohydrate, it's turned to fat when you consume too much. But actually, like, really, if all of if, if the other parts of your body actually can accept that and use it as energy, then it's not even going to go to the fat. Like, you're not even going to store the fat. So the problem is, it's looking at the factors which actually block insulin sensitivity or cause insulin resistance in things like the muscle tissue, in things like, you know, various organs and stuff. And a lot of that seems to be toxins. You know, it seems mm. to be like glyphosate or metal or plastics, all this other stuff. And then even you've got the whole EMF stuff as well. And that's like a whole other can of worms. It's like all of this stuff is just, it's just made this made the situation 10 times worse i think and actually this is more insidious because you can't even see it you don't like you don't even know it's not like you can choose what chemicals you come into contact with i mean you can to some extent if you're educated on what there actually is but for the average person um they're just looking at food as food and so if you tell them what to eat then that's the way that they see things but actually when you educate yourself a little bit more you see that actually it's not only the type of food that you're eating but it's also you know what that food was sprayed with or what it what it was preserved with or you know what soil it was grown in it just kind of makes everything so much more complicated and then when you consider epigenetics and genes being turned on or turned off and then passed on to the next generation like if you have a woman who maybe would not have become obese if she hadn't eaten certain foods, whether it was a type of food or it was you know, chemically altered or sprayed with pesticides and that, and she transmits her now deranged DNA onto the next generation, they're starting at a deficit already. And so it's yeah. easier for them to become metabolically deranged 
than it was for someone maybe the generation prior or the generation prior to that. So I think that could be part of why as the generations go on and we're going to see this more and more, that people are just going to get sicker and sicker and mm -hmm. being fat is a byproduct or a side effect of being sick. Yeah, well, if you think about it, I mean, it makes a lot of sense, but the science really does back this up. Like, if a woman is chronically deprived of certain nutrients and say she's bunged up with loads of toxins and stuff, the... the the environmental message that's going to be given to the to the fetus is that you are being born in a really stressful environment and you basically going to ha have to activate all of these systems upregulate certain enzymes downregulate other enzymes to basically adapt to a highly stressful environment and generally if the body perceives that it's under stress it's going to prepare for survival like Doug was talking about before and there's all kinds of mechanisms involved here, but basically it's like the, the baby is born into an environment which it thinks it can't survive for very long. Um, and so one of the adaptations to that seems to be that it's, it feels like it needs to store more long-term energy in the form of fat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's very nuanced. It's not all black and white. What works for one person may not work for another person. Some people can get away with a lifetime of quote unquote abusing their bodies and other people are much more sensitive to their food environment and the environment in general, whether it be EMFs or light or things like that. So, yeah, that's why we're getting swole. <laughs> <laughs> There was one other thing that I wanted to talk about. Yeah. So there was an experiment where they took these rats <clears throat> that I think have been bred to be um, naturally um, inclined to obesity. And they took, uh, they took the control rats um, and didn't do anything with them. And then they took the experimental group and they put weights on them. And they found that the weight of the weights, um, those rats would actually drop weight to be at the same weight, like average weight of what they were supposed to be. I'm not explaining this well. So <laughs> they weighed both of the, the rats, and I think that they, they weighed the same. They put the weights on one of them, and those ones actually lost weight down to the weight that they were supposed to be. I'm not sure exactly how they determined that, just because they had these weights on. They were still allowed to eat as much food as they wanted to and whatever, but just having the weights on them was enough to kind of signal the body that, hey, we're carrying around too much weight. We got to drop weight. And I was like, wow, that's pretty interesting. Like maybe that's a new like um, non-nutritional weight loss possibility. Just put on like a weighted vest. If you need to learn to <laughs> lose like 10 kilos, put on like a 10 kilo weighted vest and just walk around with that all the time. And see if you like drop drop ten kilos. <laughs> well, that's kind of like uh, lifting weights, even though you don't walk around with a, a twenty five pound barbell on your head all day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I was kind of like, hmm. I wonder if I should try that. Hmm. That'll be your experiment. You can report wow. on it for our next show. 
I'm probably not going to. Yeah, for, yeah. <laughs> in one week's time. Guys, I lost 10 kilos in one, way, one week. It was amazing. You just carried around a 25-pound bag of rice for a week. <laughs> <laughs> Strap it to my back. Yeah. Yeah. So we do have a pet health segment today, and it is on, surprise, surprise, obesity. Fat cats? Fat cats. <laughs> okay. So we will play that right now. Hello, and welcome to the pet health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. So this week's topic is obesity in cats and how obesity became an epidemic not only in the U.S., but also in many other countries. Listen up to the following interview with several natural veterinarians in order to learn how to feed your cat properly and how to prevent them from becoming overweight. Have a great weekend and goodbye. Hello, pet parents, and welcome to another episode of Natural Pets TV. I'm joined by Dr. Ken Tudor, Dr. Liz Bales, and Dr. Patrick Mahaney. This next topic that we're going to cover is something that everybody out there really needs to pay really close attention to because I know the stats are staggering. Dr. T, I want to talk about cat obesity. Kick us off. Uh, that's probably, in my mind, the leading disease in cats at this time. 58% of cats walk into veterinary hospitals for treatment of other diseases and walk out with the same disease that they walked in with being overweight and it wasn't even addressed. Um, and even more importantly to your cat is that we used to think fat was an insulating um, covering of, of the muscles, if you will, and provided energy in times of less food. But what we found now is that fat is actually the largest endocrine, body in the gland, uh, endocrine gland in the body. And it secretes in dogs about, uh, and cats about 40 uh, hormones. In humans, it's well over 100. And most of those hormones are pro-inflammatory. What that means is a cat or dog or human is living in a state of fever 7, 24, 365. In other words, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the entire year. And it, we think it's that chronic inflammation that's driving the cancer rates, that's driving the kidney problem rates, that's driving the liver problems, that's driving so much of diseases that seem to have an inflammatory uh, component. And so we really need to address this. And I think a lot of it has to do not with what we're necessarily feeding cats, how we're feeding cats. And Dr. Bales really has an agenda with regards to this. I really do. So when, when we look at, at this issue, 58% of cats in America are obese. It's a staggering statistic. And sadly, the number is going up year after year. This isn't a steady state. Things are getting worse. And we are loving our cats to death with food. And if you look at the natural feeding behavior of cats, it's so very different than what we're doing in our homes. We talk so much about what we feed our cats, and it's an important conversation. But how we feed our cats is just as important. And the natural feeding behavior of cats is to eat multiple small meals throughout the day and night. 
the average calorie content of a, a cat in nature of each meal is about 35 calories. What that equates to if you're feeding dry kibble is about 10 to 13 pieces of kibble. That's a meal for a cat. And it should happen multiple times throughout the day and night. Certainly 13 pieces of kibble a day is not sufficient as an entire diet, but that is a meal. So what often happens is we have the bowl of food in the kitchen. Our cat will go over and take a bite or two and walk away. But human beings want our cat to have a whole meal because that's what we perceive as satisfying. And so when they walk away, we think, well, that's not tasty. They don't like it. I got to go get a better food, a different food. I need a different, a whole different regime. So we make things more and more palatable for the cat and we push our food on them more and more. So now they don't follow their own natural behavior of that small meal. They mm -hmm. overeat and we are the cause of their obesity. Add to that treats. The amount of treats that we can be giving can even surpass the calorie content of the required meal that we're giving. Take it to another level. In nature, cats hunt for their food. They spend between six and eight hours a day in the active process of finding food. It's really the only exercise built into their life. When we feed them from a bowl, we completely deny them any real incentive to go exercise and look for their food. And so we have lethargy, we have overeating, and, and we're creating our own problem with obesity. It really is very distressing. I'm always shocked when I think about, too, the number one nutritional disease in pets, cats and dogs, is obesity. If you asked your typical pet owner that, they wouldn't think, oh, some like calcium deficiency or not enough protein or too much protein, but obesity. And it's a, it's a problem created by owners. It's a, it's a problem created by the pet food industry by creating this style of feeding that overindulges the pets. As a result, we've created this epidemic, which is probably affecting other countries as well, not just the U.S., especially as other countries start to model feeding behaviors off of what the U.S. is doing, too. It always concerns me, like, instead of just feeding real moist fresh human grade foods like we would eat ourselves we so rely on these processed foods that can stick in a bowl for or in a bag for weeks to months at a time and still be fresh so I'm uh, I'm very like anti-conventional feeding styles I'm very pro feeding foods like we eat ourselves but um, in, in coming back to what dr. Tudor said I think it's so important to think about the inflammatory effects of disease of, of obesity and what it really does on whole body health and especially with cats and developing diabetes um, it's it's a potentially irreversible disease that is incredibly expensive to treat it's very time-consuming for the owner it kind of creates a chain link between you and your cat you can't leave for too long you have to always monitor what they're doing you have to give them injections of insulin so if you could make efforts every day to feed kind of like what dr. Bales describes and feed smaller quantities more frequently hopefully you can and keep your cat slim on a lifelong basis and avoid them a lot of misery and avoid you a lot of expense. And cats actually want to work for their food. It's hardwired to enact their predatory instincts at mealtime. So just plopping down a plate, not only are you overfeeding their body, but you're starving their predatory instinct as well. And so it's a, it's a multifactorial problem. Right, it is. And, and as you, you mentioned, their small meal habits makes it difficult for cat owners to lead a normal life if they need to work because uh, you can't be home all the time offering these small meals. So there are a lot of alternatives out there with regards to um, regulating the amount of food a cat gets at a particular time. And I would encourage you, the cat owners to look into some of those alternatives and take their mind out of the food bowl, if you will, and think outside the box. And I think starting kittens yes. with a feeding life 
that is, I'm in the ban the bowl campaign, <laughs> that if we start kittens out with a more natural feeding uh, schedule, a more natural um, hunting for your food lifestyle, not only does it prevent obesity, but so many behavior problems as well from the anxiety of not having their environmental enrichment needs met. So uh, if you have an obese cat, I think a great thing to do is really assess is my cat obese? And take your cat to the vet. Only 10% of cat owners recognize their cat as obese. We think it's cute, it's fluffy. We, there's even Facebook clubs about fat cats. And it does seem adorable. The problem is we're killing them. We really are. We cannot, we cannot love our cats to death. It's not okay. So let's find out, is my cat obese or not? And if the f answer is yes, your cat's overweight, losing weight for a cat is very different than losing weight for a dog or a person. It really should be under medical guidance. If your cat loses weight too fast, they can become very sick, and you don't want to invest all this energy in trying to have them lose weight unsuccessfully. So doing it with your veterinarian and some guidance about how much, when, how to feed is a great idea. But that's the cat that already has the problem. It is a preventable problem. And if I was getting a kitten today, I would not start with a bowl full of food. Mm -hmm. Great idea. And so your veterinarian can actually calculate for you how many calories your cat should eat per day. And then looking at the foods, treats, collectively deciding what's the quantity that shouldn't be exceeded. And then you can figure out how to divide it into multiple small meals a day that are entertaining and engaging their body and their mind at the same time. So work with your veterinarian. Ask your veterinarian to do his or her homework to actually give you that caloric number. And then you can read the package, read the can, and determine what's the appropriate quantity. And, and you bring up a really good point about quantity because I think it's so hard for us to scale. Right. You know, we are big people. We weigh more than 10 times the amount our cat weighs. And even a very very small overfeeding. In fact, for most cats, overfeeding just 10 pieces of kibble a day over a year equals a pound of weight gain. Yeah. So it, to us, that's insignificant. I mean, I certainly eat that as a snack walking by whatever my kids left on their plate in the kitchen. It seems not, like it's nothing. But in fact, it really does add up, and sure. it's very significant. So we have to think in terms of scale, and ultimately, mathematically, is often the best way to deal with it. And I agree with Patrick and you completely, is we've got to get out of this idea of feeding quantities and feed calories. And uh, uh, the average 10-pound cat only needs about 300 to 350 calories per day. So start thinking in terms of calories for their cats rather than quantities for their cats. And let's get them moving. Yeah. Let's yes. get them moving. moving. Let's get them moving and engaged in the eating process. Well, as you can see, this is a very big problem. Thanks for joining us here on Natural Pets TV. Oh no, the cats have to eat more, or eat less and move more. <laughs> Treadmill time for the cat. Well, I, I suggest uh, getting a big cage full of mice and setting them free in the house and just letting your cats go at it. That is a terrible idea. <laughs> it engages their hunting instinct, and it's a very small meal. But you got to put up with the scratching sounds of mice in your house if they don't catch them all. <laughs> and then if you have a loyal cat, they'll eat it and just leave it dead on your pillow. Yeah, yeah. that's a problem. Or kill it and leave it dead, not eat it. <laughs> so as with humans, there's nuance involved. But I can't help but think about fat cats as being super cute. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Too bad we don't think of humans that way. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.
So do we have anything more to say about the obesity epidemic? Besides mm. don't fall for the big ag propaganda, really truthfully assess your diet and what you're eating and I don't know, do some research because you're not always going to get the right answers from your doctor or if he sends you to a nutritionist. Hey. 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 <laughs> yeah. And don't fat shame. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, join us next time, maybe. We can get all the kinks worked out for our, our new format. We'll have a another show next week but until then have a great weekend and uh, catch the truth perspective on Saturday and newsreel on Sunday bye everybody bye bye have a great weekend